Talk Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris Degeni here on Talk Show. Tonight we will cover Revelation chapters 17 and 18. There are probably only um, three, two or three, either two or three more segments to my exposition on the Revelation depending on whether I get chapters 19 and 20 together or not next week. I'm, I'm not going to try to rush it, but but it depends on the depth of, of chapter 19, you know, how far I go into it. Chapter 19 it is going to be quite interesting. It, it's um, another program that Eli James would have a problem doing with me because of our difference of opinion on, on eschatology, which has come out recently. It's chapter 19 is the wedding feast of the Lamb, and as we will see next week, the wedding feast of the Lamb is when all of the enemies of Yahweh are destroyed. Okay, this is um, Revelation chapter 17 and 18. Through Revelation chapter 13, we saw the conditions which Israel, Israel would suffer under her prophecy 2,520 years or seven times of punishment. And after being put out of the old kingdom, these were seen in a vision of two images. The first image in chapter 12 was a vision of the woman with the 12 stars, the 12 tribes of Israel, and the nature of her persecutors. And the second was in chapter 13, a vision of the beast which would rule over the woman, those who would tyrannize her. Earlier in chapters 10 and 11, we saw the conditions which released the woman from that tyranny, the woman being the collective children of Israel, for they embraced the word of God with the opening of the little book. So chapters 12 and 13 were a reflection of what was yet to transpire, written by John as long as 1,800 years in advance. And much of it was also foretold in his visions in those earlier chapters of the Revelation. Because it was a reflection of events, some of which were in the past and some in the far-off future, when it was actually written, it could not possibly have been understood until after it had happened. The prophetic words of God do not come to us, except with perhaps a few exceptions, notably Daniel's 70 weeks, they don't come to us so that we may read them and see the future. Rather, they come to us that we may read them, look back at our history, and know that God is true. He is true because he was able to reveal these things to us long before they transpired. We have his record of it, and now we know it to be true, even though we could not in times past see it for ourselves, even though we had his word. This is indeed a Christian paradox. In Revelation chapters 14 and 15, we see that the conditions are explained in a vision for the last days of this age in the prophecy time of Jacob's trouble, which we are surely engaged in for these past 200 years. This time has brought upon us a greater and more horrendous, has brought upon us greater and more horrendous wars than we have ever seen in history. It began with the French Revolution, and now it has us in a state where we are completely engulfed by our enemies, and only a few generations 
from losing any possibility of sustaining ourselves as a homogenous race. As we mingle more and more with those of our enemies under the pretenses of liberty, equality, and fraternity. If one desires to know with certainty what is behind these things, here is 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 19. Quote, These are streams without water, broken cisterns, and clouds being driven by a tempest, for whom the gloom of darkness is kept. For uttering excessive vanity, they entice with the licentious desires of the flesh, those nearly escaping who are returning to error or sin. Proclaiming for themselves freedom or liberty, they become slaves of corruption. For by that which one is overcome, to this he is enslaved. In that chapter, Peter is talking about those infiltrators and corruptors of our race, who are ever opposed to our God and to his Christ. They promise us liberty, and, and we become slaves of corruption, because we only have true liberty in Christ. Revelation chapter 16 describes the seven bowls of the wrath of God, and by this we understand the nature of that wrath. Nearly 500 years ago, we had the opening of the little book, and the word of God was seen by a Damic man. That word is his true Ark of the Covenant, since it contains the promises of his covenant. And therefore, the Ark of the Covenant was mentioned with the opening of the little book and the two witnesses at the end of Revelation chapter 11. In this age of self-government, all men have a choice to seek to follow the word of God or to choose to follow the beast and acquire the mark of the beast by worshiping the beast rather than Yahweh our God. The seven bowls of wrath, which we saw in chapter 16, have not yet completely been poured because Babylon is still with us. As shall be made evident in the chapters which follow. Now, to proceed with chapters 17 and 18, which are a description of Mystery Babylon and the woman depicted in an entirely different light as the whore who rides atop the beast. Because this vision, which begins chapter 17, is a description of the woman and the condition of the woman, it will also offer further prophetic insight into the conditions of this present era. Chapter 17 Verse 1, and one from among the seven messengers, having the seven bowls, came and spoke with me, saying, Come, I shall show you the judgment of the great whore who sits upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have fornicated, and those inhabiting the earth have been intoxicated from the wine of her fornication. And in the spirit he brought me to a desert. Speaking allegorically, of course. There is really only one woman in the life of Yahweh, and that is the nation of the children of Israel. The children of Israel are the woman of Revelation chapter 12, and they are also the woman of Revelation chapter 17. Whenever in the Old Testament 
the children of Israel followed the ways of the aliens and followed after strangers, they were described as a woman, a wife, specifically the wife of Yahweh, who had gone off into whoredom. Here, it is no different. In the centuries following the Reformation, when practically everyone had a family Bible, the little book that was open to all Israel, most of our race has instead chosen to worship the beast system and pursue the things of this world. Therefore, Israel is the whore sitting upon many waters. The Saxon empires who had subjugated all of, all of the world's aliens by the beginning of this very period, in the dawn of the 19th century, while the British Empire was, of course, the foremost among them, other Saxon nations also had their colonies abroad. These are the many waters which the horse sits upon. Those inhabiting the earth, all of the peoples of this world, whether sheep or goats, are intoxicated with the wine of her fornication, and without the Saxon peoples and their inventions, there is no durable and lasting trade. The end of verse 3. And I saw a woman sitting upon a scarlet beast filled with the names of blasphemy. Having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and gilt in gold and precious stones and pearls. Having a cu gold cup in her hand full of the abominations and the unclean things of her fornication. And upon her forehead a name is inscribed. Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of whores, mother of the whores, and the abominations of the earth. It is the beast who is filled with the names of blasphemy and not the woman. The seven heads and the ten horns again represent the governments and powers which have ruled over the woman. And by this we see that our subject has not changed from those earlier visions and prophecies concerning world empires which were to rule Quote, wheresoever the children of men dwell, unquote, meaning the sons of Adam, as it is stated at Daniel 2.38 of the first beast. The first beast of Revelation chapter 13 being that series of empires. In order to understand the beast referred to here as Mystery Babylon, we must go back to the original Babylon, the Tower of Babel account of Genesis chapter 11, and, and let us begin there. And I'll quote the first nine or ten verses of it. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech, and it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, meaning the descendants of Noah, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, let us go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and swine had they for mortar. And they said, go to, let us build a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now that word name may also mean a memorial. And Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower 
which the children of men had built. And Yahweh said, Behold, the people is one, and they all have one language. Yet this they began to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So Yahweh scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name called, of it called Babel, because Yahweh did there confound the language of, the, of all the earth. Babel means confusion. And from thence did Yahweh scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Of course, Genesis chapter 11 is only describing the white Adamic sons of Noah, who had been listed in Genesis chapter 10. And yes, there were Kenites and Canaanites among them. The Kenites not having descended from the sons of Noah, but the Canaanites are listed there, and the people that Canaan mixed with. While there may have been thousands, even tens of thousands, of Adamic people descended from Noah in the world by this time, here then, in the balance of Genesis chapter 11, is the genealogy carried down to Abraham, and the rest of the Bible story shall focus upon him and his descendants. From henceforth, the other Adamic nations and any non-Adamic peoples are referred to only when they come into contact with or when it is pertinent to the children of Israel. The Genesis 11 event is referred to in later scripture, both at Deuteronomy 32.8 and in Acts 17.26. Here are those passages. From Deuteronomy, When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob, is the lot of his inheritance. Acts 17.26 And he made for one every nation of men to dwell upon all the face of the earth, appointing the times ordained and the boundaries of their settlements. Yahweh God created the borders between the Adamic nations and ordained the periods of their duration. It has always been the purpose of the dragon and as it states in Revelation chapter 13, it is the dragon which gives its authority to the beast to destroy those borders. For this reason, in the Old Testament, we see the word Canaanite used to refer to a merchant. For the terms became synonymous. Examples are at Job 41.6, Proverbs 31.24, Isaiah 23.11, Hosea 12.7, and Zephaniah 1.11. Canaanite became synonymous with merchant, although there were other Hebrew words for merchant. The Edomites were also Canaanites, except for Esau himself. He took Canaanite wives. And it is manifest in Revelation chapter 12 that the Edomite Herod was one representative of the dragon, by which we understand the nature of Satan as those people forever opposed to the God of creation. They are the seed of the Genesis 3.15 serpent. In this age, it is the intended and often published goal of the international merchants and bankers 
most whom happen to be Edomite Jews, to break down the borders and bring all local and regional laws into conformity so that, quote, the world may be as one, unquote. Exactly the situation which, as we could tell from Genesis chapter 11, Yahweh, our God, despises. Stronger correlations between Mystery Babylon and international commercialism shall be made later in chapter 18, with it perfectly evident. First, several other things must be considered and discussed. It can be shown that many aspects of the world system which we have today Things which are especially promoted by the international Jew had their origins, at least among the Adamic race, in ancient Babylon. Among these things are the ideas of democracy and the current laws extant throughout the Christian world governing commercial transactions. The first pagan pantheons were also found in ancient Sumer. Many scholars think that democracy, which is ruled by the people, was new to the ancient Greeks and developed by them. Yet, there are much older Mesopotamian inscriptions which reveal a democratic system in operation many centuries before the Greek experiment. This is remarked upon with references to several journal articles in ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament. J.B. Pritchard, editor, 1969, Princeton University Press. There are several scholarly articles that's page 43, I believe. There are several scholarly articles in other publications also referring to this form of so-called primitive democracy, as the anthropologists try to label it. Yet where the people were said in Genesis chapter 11 to have, quote, said to one another, and, quote, let us make a name, they were certainly acting democratically. And therefore, we find that democracy is indeed rooted in ancient Babylon. A rather recent article ran in the January 2001 issue of a periodical called Archaeology, entitled The Birth of Kingship from Democracy to Monarchy in Ancient Sumer, which also discusses that topic. We see the idea of democracy is as old as and first found amongst our race in ancient Babylon. However, an observation concerning more recent and perhaps more pertinent circumstances is this, that the Torah, the Hebrew law, advocates theocracy as the only viable system of government for the Adamic race, while the Talmud, the real religious book of the Jews, the Talmud is actually a book advocating democracy where the decisions of a preponderance of rabbis outweigh the word of God in the eyes of the Jew. The following quote is from page 173 of the book Maimonides, The Life and World of One of Civilization's Greatest Minds, and I would dispute the truth of the title. It states, quote, Maimonides' discourse on majority and minority, even individual views, exemplifies how rabbinic democracy worked. Having established that the law follows 
majority opinion or consensus, not prophetic inspiration, Maimonides noted the value of individual opinion. They're the writer's words and not mine. <laughs> so we see that the idea that man can rule himself in a majority of opinions, and that that majority of opinions can then outweigh the word of God, that idea is rooted in the Babylonian Talmud. This is one facet of Mystery Babylon. Reading the writings of Madison, Jefferson, Franklin, Adams, and others of the founding fathers of this nation, they founded a republic based upon Christian principles and guided by the word of God. America was never, ever supposed to be a democracy. In the early 20th century, the Jewish media sold that idea to a slothful and ignorant people. In the, in the early Middle Ages, the Jews had rabbinical schools at Babylon. And from there, were supplied rabbis, they supplied rabbis and teachers to the rest of the Jewish world throughout the Mediterranean. While there are two different Talmuds, the Babylonian and the Jerusalem, the Babylonian Talmud is regarded as the authoritative version. The authority, this is a quote, the authority of the Babylonian Talmud is also greater than that of the Jerusalem Talmud. In cases of doubt, the former is decisive. That's from a book, From Torah to Kabbalah, A Basic Introductions to the Writings of Judaism, page 40, R.C. Musab Andries. Mystery Babylon has been disseminated through and is inseparable from world Jewry. The vile Antichrist ideas emanating from the Talmud and spread throughout the Christian world through the synagogues of the Jews have affected the lives of each and every Christian throughout the past several centuries. Everywhere we find Jews in democracy, we find the principles of the Babylonian Talmud in action, which inevitably leads to the enslavement of Christians in Pharisaism and tyranny. Not only has our system of government become overtaken by Mystery Babylon, more so our system of commerce. In a thoroughly researched 1983 Georgetown Law Review article written by a Jewish, a boastful Jewish named Judith Shapiro, entitled, The Shetar's Effect on English Law, A Law of the Jews Becomes the Law of the Land. That's the title. It is fully evident that English and American commercial laws, the laws which govern contracts and debt and credit transactions, were also taken from the Talmud because there was no need for Saxons to even have such laws until after the admission of Jews and usury into England. One major change to English law was made due to Jewish influence and that was that a landholder could be separated from his land as a result of a default on debt, something which was not permitted before time. The mortgage is an invention of this period. 
The introduction to Talmudic principles made in England and on the continent because of the acceptance of Jewish money lending is absolutely contrary to the laws of Yahweh our God, which Christians should seek to live after, i.e. Romans 3.31. Mystery Babylon also has a religious aspect to it. And, in spite of what Alexander Hislop wrote, he, he's basically an inventor of tales, while there is no direct connection between the papacy and the ancient high priesthood of Babylon, as some infer, there is still a connection nonetheless. The Roman Catholic Church adopted all of the pagan ways of old Rome and painted a Christian facade on them. The rituals, the statues, the edifices dedicated to a so-called saint, one so-called saint or another, are no different than the ancient Babylonian pagan temples dedicated to so-called gods and the rituals which took place in them. Amongst our race, those things appeared in Sumer first. Verse 5 of Revelation chapter 17 announces, Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of the whores and the abominations of the earth. And this is certainly true when it is considered that these whores are the individual assemblies of Israelites, still worshiping idols in the pagan manner the way their ancestors did thousands of years ago. Revelation 17, verse 6. And I saw the woman intoxicated from the blood of the saints and from the blood of those bearing the testimony of Yahshua, and I marveled seeing this great wonder. Nearly all of the white Adamic peoples killed in our wars or persecutions were killed by their own fellow white Adamites. Yet, whether it be the Thirty Years' War, the extermination of the French who French Huguenots, the American war between the states, or the two world wars of the 20th century, the aggressors were always convinced that they were doing good, even doing the will of God himself. The instigators were always Jews, and those who the Jews convinced and financed to do their bidding. An example is the extermination of the French Huguenots, which occurred when France was under the thumb of Catherine de' Medici, of that same family of Jewish bankers who brought usury to the Romish Catholic Church. The woman, believing that she has done well by exterminating her own people, is surely intoxicated from the blood of the saints. Verse 7. And the messenger said to me, for what reason do you marvel? I shall tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast carrying her, having seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw was and is not, and is going to ascend from out of the bottomless pit and go into destruction. And those dwelling upon the earth, whose name is not written in the book of life and the foundation of society, because they're not Adam, shall marvel seeing the beast that was and is not, and shall be present. The seven heads and ten horns identify this beast as the same beast that was seen in Revelation chapter 13, the first beast. It was, and yet John foresaw its demise, which long ago transpired. Yet, 
It is, quote, going to ascend from out of the bottomless pit, unquote. The casting of the beast into the pit in the, in the first place and its ascent from out of the pit are a topic for Revelation chapter 20, which is another vision of this very same thing from a different perspective. There it shall also be established that this beast is indeed world Jewry. The Jews of today, actually having descended from the Edomites and other Canaanites of the Old Testament, are the descendants of the seed of the serpent through Cain, Canaan, and Esau. That Satan is also the dragon and the serpent. That these are all epithets for the same entity is fully evident in Revelation chapter 12, where it is also evident that Herod the Great stood as a historical representative of the dragon, fitting perfectly with Scripture since Herod was an Edomite and not an Israelite. When the Jews were excoriated from Christian society after Christianity became the official religion of the empire and edicts were made against them by the Byzantine emperors, they were forced to remain in the background either outside of the empire and they went in large numbers to Caesarea and to Arabia, or at various times and in various degrees they were able to exert influence discreetly from positions as money lenders to unscrupulous noblemen, as court physicians to kings, or in other ways. During this period, however, the Jew had comparatively little influence over everyday Christian life, and for a thousand years could not even dwell near Christians, but had to live in ghettos, Jewish neighborhoods set aside for them to dwell in. However, after the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jews, the Jew once again attained equal rights of citizenship alongside of white Europeans, something he had not had in Europe since the passing of pagan Rome. Jewish emancipation was actually a process that began toward the end of the 15th century when wealthy Jewish converts to Roman Catholicism were able to secure the papacy with regularity. Among these were the De Medici popes. I'm sorry, I should have had after the end of the 16th century there. Towards the end of the 16th. No, I'm sorry, the 15th century. I'm confusing myself. With Giovanni di Medici, who was not even a priest, posing as Pope Leo X during the Fifth Lateran Council, usury became acceptable to Catholics by decree, and whether bishops liked it or not, they weren't given a choice to express their dissatisfaction with it, although many of them actually were. During the Reformation, while the German reformers rejected usury, Calvin accepted the practice. In New England, a hundred years later, two hundred years later, Cotton Mather also defended the practice of usury and advocated it as necessary for commerce. The acceptance of usury by Christendom secured the path 
by which Satan emerged from the pit which he had been in for a thousand years. The beast which emerged from the pit, as we see described here in Revelation 17, would go into destruction. The French Revolution was launched from the Masonic Lodges of France. These, in turn, and particularly the Grand Orient Lodge, had been infiltrated by the Jews in the decades which preceded, and particularly by the Illuminati, a group founded by Jesuit priest Adam Weishaupt, who was a Jew by race. The Jesuit order was also a Jewish vehicle by which Jews were able to infiltrate and influence the Romish church and the governments of Europe before they could do so openly as Jews. Once the French Revolution was completed, Christendom, as it had been known for centuries, was practically destroyed in France, along with much of the French nobility, and many of the ideals of the revolution were then exported to the rest of the European continent via Napoleon Bonaparte, who officially emancipated the Jews. The French Revolution was also enriched, also enriched the Jewish House of Rothschild in Britain to the point where it could take a commanding control of the British economy, and which until now holds a tremendous influence over the policies of that nation. From the time of their emancipation, the Jews had launched one revolution and war after another, unto this very day, whether they be revolutions of arms, such as the Bolshevik Revolution, or merely social revolutions, such as those which were seen in America in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, which have turned American society into a cesspool of immorality. All of the Jewish-instigated social revolutions have had the common goal of destroying the basic fabric of Christian society, not merely stopping at the so-called churches and governments, but even destroying the basic family unit itself. All of those not written into the Book of Life are to marvel after this beast, which has brought us sexual liberation, communism, women's liberation, the civil rights movement, racial so-called equality, diversity, multiculturalism, unlimited third world immigration, and every other wicked and unclean spirit that our society has been beset with these past 200 years, all while they cry incessantly for liberty, egality, and fraternity. All a big sham. Revelation 17, verse 9. Thus is the mind having wisdom, the seven heads of seven mountains, where the woman sits upon them. And there are seven kings, five had fallen, one is, another has not yet come, and when he should come, it is necessary that it remains a short time. And the beast which was and is not, even he is the eighth. So this eighth beast is not a king, and is from all the seven, and goes into destruction. The seven mountains of the world empires, which have ruled over the woman, 
throughout history. In Daniel chapters 2 and 7, we saw only four world empires described. But Daniel's vision was not as full of panoramas history as the one here revealed to John. The five empires which are fallen are the empires of Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, and Greece. The one which is, in John's time, is Rome. The short-lived Seventh Empire must be that of Napoleon, who indeed lasted only for a brief time. The papacy is not counted here, since the papacy is merely a revival of one of the heads of the first beast of Rome, and the Holy Roman Empire was a mere extension of the papacy. It was a, 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 an arm of the papacy. The eighth beast must be Jewish international finance, world Jewry itself, since not only does it control all world governments today, but both the British and the American empires have been fueled by the Jews of London and then by the Jews of New York. They are mere tools of the eighth beast, which is, in its sum, greater than either of them, although they are major components of it. The United Nations is not even considered here, since that, too, is only a front for world Jewry. It's an illusion of world government. The real world government is in the city in London or on Wall Street. Verse 12, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have never received a kingdom, but they shall receive authority as kings for one hour with the beast. These have one mind and power, and they give their authority to the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, because he is prince of princes and king of kings, and those with him called and chosen and faithful. There is much speculation over which kings these ten are. At one time it was imagined they could be the ten European Commonwealth nations. Well, now there are a lot more than ten of them, and that is certainly not likely. Or perhaps there will be ten United Nations secretaries, as if they ever actually had any real power. The horns hate the whore, the people of Israel, so they must represent some power opposed to the people of Israel, whether they be bankers or despots. Since they give their authority to the beast, the horns must be of the dragon, for which compare Revelation chapter 13, verse 4, where it tells us that it's the dragon who gives his authority to the beast. And I'm sure the pattern is the same today. However, until the lamb overcomes this last beast, it cannot be shown with any certainty exactly what these ten kings represent. It would be easy to name ten international Jewish billionaires, but it may also be vain to create such a list before the end of these things. Verse 13 here, which state that, quote, 
Beasts have one mind and power, and they give their authority to the beast, may be compared to verse 17 below, and which shall be discussed momentarily. Revelation 17:15, And he says to me, the waters which you saw where the horse sits, are people in multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw, and the beast, these shall hate the whore, and they shall make her desolate and naked, and they shall eat her flesh, and they shall burn her down with fire. These statements verify the interpretation given here, and today the children of Israel are spread over the entire globe. Yet the horns of the beast have long been stripping the whore and making her desolate. Verse 17, for Yahweh has bestowed it into their hearts to do his will and to have one purpose, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of Yahweh shall be accomplished. And the woman which you saw is the great city which has dominion over the kings of the earth. The children of Israel, in whatever nations they dwell have, through a so-called democratic process, voluntarily enslaved themselves to the beast. This has been exactly as Peter has warned, that proclaiming for themselves freedom, they become slaves of corruption. While the Jew has pronounced liberty, the white Christian world has been placed under the burdens of ever-burgeoning bureaucracies and higher and higher taxes to support and enforce these Jewish ideals of freedom, which really only elevate the scum of the world to assume the position of the children of God and liberate the white Christian from the fruits of his labors. The white Christian, once having been truly free in the bondage of Christ, has now enslaved himself to the Jew because he chose to worship the idols set up by the Jew, turning away from the worship of Yahweh his God. After the French Revolution, the Jew was free to disseminate not only countless false religions and false philosophies, but also all of the fleshly distractions of which he is history's most famous propagator. Pornography in pulp novels, pornography in the theater, gambling houses, prostitution, the corruption of children, and every other vice imaginable has become commonplace in modern white, formerly Christian society. The Jew, the eternal panderer, has now come to rule over white society because white Christians participated in the sins of the Jew, or at least permitted them, under the guise of liberty rather than taking a stand against them at the start. For that reason, because white Christians were smitten by the vices of the Jew, Yahweh God has put it into their hearts to hand their kingdom over to the beast. While this happened at diverse times in the European nations, it happened here in America in 1913 when the Jewish bankers were given control of the nation's future through the so-called Federal Reserve Act. The Federal Reserve Act was the end of the implementation of Jewish communism in America. The Communist Manifesto calls for 
quote, centralization of credit in the hands of the state by means of a national bank with state capital and an exclusive monopoly, unquote. The Federal Reserve is precisely that. Once they achieved control of the American economy, it mattered not who sits in the presumed offices of power in Washington. Nathan Rothschild, the scion of the banking family in the days of Napoleon, is attributed as once having said, quote, I care not what puppet is placed on the throne of England to rule the empire. The man who controls Britain's money supply controls the British Empire, and I, Nathan Rothschild, control the British money supply. While earlier British colonization was often financed for profit by the bankers of London, Hudson Bay Company, the Virginia Company, the Rothschilds were behind the colonization and occupations of India, the opening up of China and Japan for trade by the British, the Opium Wars, and all of the other so-called imperialist British wars of the 19th and 20th centuries. Through its New York and Boston banking agents, they also engineered the war between the states and all of the American wars of imperialism. Nathaniel Meyer Rothschild, speaking to a group of international bankers in 1912, is attributed as having said, quote, the few who could understand the system of check money and credits will either be so interested in its profits or so dependent on its favors that there will be no opposition from that class, while on the other hand, a great body of people mentally incapable of comprehending the tremendous advantage that capital derives from the system will bear its burdens without complaint, and perhaps without even suspecting that the system is inimical to their interests, and it certainly is. The wars against the German people in the 20th century and the Bolshevik so-called revolution in Russia were orchestrated by the Rothschilds so that those nations may also be enslaved by the same beast. Now, I understand that I've been saying that the whore is Israel, and Revelation chapter 18 says, And the woman which you saw is the great city, which has dominion over the kings of the earth. Well, I don't think that this city is Babylon. I think that this city is Jerusalem. The people of God do have dominion over all the kings of the earth. But we've handed our kingdom over to the international Jew. Revelation chapter 18. After these things, I saw another messenger descending from heaven, having great authority. And the earth is illuminated from his effulgence. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen. And it has become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird, because from of the wine of the passion of her fornication fell all the nations, and the kings of the earth fornicated with her, and the merchants of the earth are enriched from the power 
of her wantonness. While Babylon has not quite fallen, here it is pronounced as a sure declaration by Yahweh who, as Paul says at Romans chapter 17, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 17, calls things not existing as existing. It is fully, it is indeed fully evident that the cities of the formerly white Christian nations have indeed become a dwelling place for demons and a prison for every unclean spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. Those cities are filled with Jews and with every sort of beast admitted into the white Christian nations as the fruits of imperialism and international commerce. This is the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 31, where it says in verse 27, Behold, the days come, saith Yahweh, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from out of heaven saying, You come out from her, my people that you should not partake in her errors, and that you would not receive from of her wounds, because her errors, or sins, had built up as far as heaven, and Yahweh has called to mind her injustices. This may be interpreted several different ways. It may be opined that the people of God cannot come out of the beast they cannot separate themselves entirely from this evil world system until Babylon does fall. And that, in many respects, is true. Another way to interpret it is that once sufficient, a sufficient number of the people of God do separate themselves from the evil world system, that it will fall. Yet we cannot expect the providence of God to require the assistance of the hand of man. It is evident that the current world system, the illusion of security in consumerism, humanism, and global mercantilism, will come crashing down upon those who worship the beast. Those people of God who do not worship the beast system, they should attempt to separate themselves from it so that when it does crash, they do not suffer its punishments. That crash may be sudden as verses... 10, 17, and 19 of this chapter seem to indicate, however, the phrase one hour is not so definite a period in Greek as the English expression infers, and in prophecy it may indeed designate a longer interval, months or even a couple of years, and there are, there are examples of that in Revelation eleven thirteen. And Revelation 14.7 and 17.12. Even without fear of judgment, Christians should always seek to separate themselves from the evil deeds and from the wicked people anyway, and in every aspect of life, avoid getting caught up in the beast system. Paul warned at 2 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verses 14 through 18, quote, Do not become yoked together with untrustworthy aliens, for what participation has justice and lawlessness? And what fellowship has light towards darkness? And what accord is Christ with Belial? Or what share the faithful with the faithless, or those without the faith? Not that they don't have faith, it's that that the faith is not for them. 16. And what agreement has the temple of Yahweh with idols? For you are a temple of the living Yahweh, just as Yahweh had said, I will dwell among them, and I will walk about, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. On which account, come out from the midst of them, and be separated. That warning being very much like the warning that we see here, you come out from her, my people, come out from the midst of them and be separated, says the prince, and do not be joined to the impure, and I will admit you. And I will be for you to a father, and you will be mine for sons and daughters, says the almighty prince or lord. Verse 17 of this passage, which I just read, quotes Isaiah 52.11, which says, Depart ye, depart ye, go ye not out from thence, touch no unclean thing, which was added to the text of the King James and most other translations of Isaiah. Go ye out of the midst of her, be ye clean that bear the vessels of Yahweh. All of the translations I have seen add the word thing to the text in one way or another in Isaiah 50 to 11. Yet it is really saying, only touch not the unclean. And in context, refers back to coming out from the midst of them. So the unclean must be people and not inanimate objects. The vessels of Yahweh are those children of Adam who bear the spirit which Yahweh breathed into Adam. The other races and the mixed races do not have this spirit. Revelation 18, verse 6. You return to her as she also had rendered, and you double twice the things according to her works. In the cup which she had mixed, you mixed double for her. As much as she had magnified herself and lived wantonly, so much you give torment and grief to her. Because in her heart she says that I sit a queen, and I am not a widow, and I have not seen grief. For this reason, in one day shall her plagues come, death and grief and famine. And she shall be burned with fire, because mighty is Prince Yahweh who judges her. The vengeance of the people of God shall be discussed in detail with Revelation chapter 19, which describes the wedding supper of the Lamb, which is the destruction of all of the enemies of God who are here on this earth. Here, in reference to this, in reference to this passage, Micah chapter 4 shall be quoted. When discussing Revelation chapter 12 several weeks ago, it was posited here 
that Micah chapter 4 is not only a vision of the circumstances surrounding the coming of Christ, but I'm sorry, it was posited that Revelation chapter 12 is not only a vision of the circumstances surrounding the coming of Christ, but was also a vision of the circumstances surrounding the creation of these United States, of this nation, the first and only nation ever founded as a Christian nation. And Micah chapter 4 was used to support that contention. Micah 4.13 states, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine horn iron, and I will make thy hooves brass. And thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. The children of Yahweh have yet to look forward to the fulfillment of these passages. Micah 4.13 is speaking about the same thing that Revelation 18.6 and 7 are speaking of. The exclamation by the woman, the whore sitting upon the beast, that, quote, I sit a queen, and I am not a widow, and I have not seen grief. This exclamation sounds exactly like the attitude being taught today in the Judaized sects of Christianity, or churchianity, I should say, where the gospel of personal enrichment is preached. That gospel is probably the best doctrine that could have been formulated for the benefit of the international commerce of the Jew, it is also an absolute deception. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth who had fornicated and lived wantonly with her shall weep and shall mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing from afar off on account of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe to the great city Babylon, the mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Where the carcass is, there the eagles will have gathered. Mystery Babylon. The international mercantile system of debt, credit, and free trade set up by the internationalist Jew. The kings of the earth have compromised the stability of their own nations in order to commit fornication or open their borders so that the beast may thrive, hoping to enjoy the benefits of its false prosperity. Verse 11. And the merchants of the earth weep and lament over her, because no one buys their cargo any longer. Cargo of gold and of silver and of precious stone, and of pearl and of linen and of cloths, cloths of purple and of silk and of scarlet, and every cedar timber and every ivory vessel and every vessel from a precious wood and of copper and of iron and of marble, and cinnamon and incense and ointment and frankincense and wine and olive oil and flour and grain and herds and flocks, and of horses and of carriages and of bodies and souls of men. The Jews are also the world's foremost slave traders. And your maturity of youth, that of the desire of the soul, has departed from you, 
and all the rich things and the lustrous things have vanished from you, and no longer shall these things be found. A parallel can be found in ancient history. Ancient Tyre was a city of Israel, as both Josephus and the Septuagint manuscripts profess, and history proves. And it too was a great city of international commerce, complete with cosmopolitan attitudes and Canaanite merchants. Ezekiel chapter 27 is a lamentation for Tyre. And it begins, and I'll start with verse 2. Now, thou son of man, take up a lamentation for Tyrus, and say unto Tyrus, O thou that art situate at the entry of the sea, which art a merchant of the people for many isles. Thus saith Yahweh God, O Tyrus, thou hast said, I am of perfect beauty. Thy borders are in the midst of the seas. Thy builders have perfected thy beauty. The merchant traffic of Tyre was then described by Ezekiel at length, and the lamentation ends thus, with verse 34. In the time when thou shalt be broken by the seas, in the depths of the waters thy merchandise and all thy company in the midst of thee shall fall. All the inhabitants of the isle shall be astonished at thee, and their kings shall be sore afraid. They shall be troubled in their countenance. The merchants among the people shall hiss at thee. Thou shalt be a terror, and never shalt thou be any more. Ezekiel's words were, of course, fulfilled. However, the children of Israel did not learn by the example. Verse 15. The merchants of these things who are enriched from her shall stand from afar off on account of the fear of her torment, weeping and lamenting. They say, Woe, woe, the great city, wrapped in linen and purple and scarlet, and gilt with gold and with precious stone and with pearl. For in one hour such wealth is made desolate. And every pilot and all who are sailing by the place and sailors and as many as are working the sea stood from afar off and cried out, seeing the smoke of her burning and saying, What is like the great city? And they cast dirt on their heads and cried out, weeping and lamenting, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all those having ships in the sea have been enriched from her value, for in one hour she is made desolate. There is not much more that can be added to make this picture any clearer than it is. Global commerce will come to an end. It is served only to enrich the enemies of Yahweh and to destroy his people. The articles of commerce are, descri are described in terms of luxury available to John in his own time. But they represent all of the goods of international trade today even though, of course, now they are more modern, electronic goods and vehicles, and all of the other modern amenities. Just as the whore of Babylon said, I sit a queen, and I am not a widow, and I have not seen grief. The king of Tyre is depicted where he is lamented in Ezekiel, 
in chapter 28 as saying, quote, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. All of the rewards of this world are vanity. Seeking after them is idolatry. Yahshua Christ said to the wealthy young man who kept all of the commandments, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. We as men make the mistaken beliefs of elevating ourselves when we acquire riches, wishing to lord it over our brethren and control them through our wealth. The king of Tyre was lamented because he was an Israelite, but he was brought down, and Tyre was never again. We have that for an example today when we think about these international Jewish merchants. They will be brought down, just like the king of Tyre, and they will never be again. Verse 20. Rejoice over her. O heaven and saints and ambassadors and prophets. Because Yahweh has passed the judgment of your condemnation of her. The people of God have already condemned international commerce in this modern version of the beast system. Now they await the moment of its destruction. Verse 21. And the one mighty messenger took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus we with violence Babylon the great is cast down, and she shall not be found hereafter. And the sound of lyrists and poets and flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you hereafter. And every craftsman of every craft shall not be found in you hereafter. And the sound of the mill shall not be heard in you hereafter. And the light of the lamp shall not shine in you hereafter. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride shall not be heard in you hereafter. Because your merchants were the great men of the earth. Because by your pharmaceuticals, not sorceries, pharmaceuticals, the word being pharmakia, have all the nations been deceived. And in her is found the blood of the prophets and the saints, and all those having been slaughtered upon the earth. The Jewish world of sorcery and multiculturalism and fornication and race mixing and deviancy and godlessness and everything else which the beast system represents shall fail, and it shall be destroyed, supplanted by the kingdom of God. Exactly how or when this is going to happen cannot be known beyond what the Scripture tells us. And the children of Israel are powerless to act out this judgment by themselves. Vengeance belongs to God, as it is evident here in verse 20 that Yahweh has passed the judgment of your condemnation on her. Here we have seen with certainty 
that international jewelry, globalism, this system that we live under today, is the eighth beast of the Revelation and the final beast. We wait for Babylon to fall. The next chapter of the Revelation, chapter 19, portrays the final culmination of the last great challenge facing the people of God, which is described as occurring after the fall of Babylon. We will see that next week. Yahweh willing, I will discuss it here. That's it for tonight. This went a little quicker than I had planned, but that's okay. I probably talked too fast. Thank you, and, and I will see you hopefully next week. Praise Yahweh. Good night.